0: Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.com. .me forward slash pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at hpo podcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of HPO. And I'm I'm really excited today to have uh, uh, a, a Dr. Jenny at Ettenayer, at, at, not at that's right. Okay. Ettenayer, yep. Cool. I want to make sure I'm not butching your name the entire time. <laughs> That's All right. That's all right. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on here, Doctor Attnayer, because we have dove into a lot of different topics on this podcast. A lot around fitness, health, nutrition, all sorts of different stuff from competitive sport to just health and well being, like all like the the broad spectrum. So having someone to come in and chat with us a little bit about just like, well, what are the health benefits of exercise or what are we doing outside of just the physical, I guess you could say physical separate from mental, but technically they're probably slight, they're intertwined to a degree, but, or maybe you can help us figure that one out. (laughs) But I'm really interested to hear like, like, what are some of the health benefits and things that come with movement and does movement kind of cross the spectrum as like you get the same benefit from certain things as you do others, or is there some variance in there and, and help us kind of get to the bottom of like, what are we doing positively or potentially negatively to our mind when it comes to exercise and, and just movement of the body and things like that. So, so I'm excited to dive into kind of that, that broad topic in a, in a few different areas with you today. Uh, so thanks for kind of coming on the show.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I uh, you know, one of the challenges for people who work in academics is to try to share what we know more broadly. You know, we spend a lot of time publishing in academic journals and that's that's a great way to share our knowledge with others who are like minded and reading that same literature. Um, but I really welcome the opportunity to talk to, to talk to you and to, to share what we know with your, your listeners.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think I've, I've, I love the podcast side of things for that because I think just from when I first started listening to podcasts myself to today, I see a lot more folks with just like, you know, the PhD background, uh, the, you know, the professors in, at the university saying, hey, you know, part of my um, purpose is to, you know, do the research and, you know, figure out some of these answers that people are asking. But then uh, eventually you need to kind of put it to a degree in layman's terms, I guess, for someone like myself who like, you know, I could comb through a lot of the research, but you know, I'm going to make mistakes. Whereas when we have someone like you come on, you can spin it, spin it into the, the right language for us to kind of be able to comprehend and understand like some actionable approaches to it versus just, you know, trying to comb through abstracts and things like that. So, uh, I'm always excited to have, have the, the university professors and MDs and PhDs come on the show and kind of share their insight. Um, One thing uh, I want to start with, just so our folks have a little bit of background, is if you want to just kind of fill us in, kind of what your background is, tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what brought you into this field of research.
1: Sure. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm a professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and my specialization area is exercise psychology. And even within that specialization, my focus is really on the mental health benefits of exercise. And within that, I'm really interested in the cognitive benefits of exercise. So the research that I do is mostly focused on how physical activity can help improve people's um, cognitive abilities. And by that, what I'm talking about is like their ability to solve problems, their ability to remember things, their ability to um, inhibit inappropriate responses, things like that. Um, I've been at UNC Greensboro for 16 years now. Um, I'm currently leading a study where we're looking at physical activity as a potential means of um, preventing or at least delaying Alzheimer's disease, so I hope we talk about that a little bit. Um, On the side, I also have some interests related to youth sport. I'm working for a company, uh, consulting for a company named Mojo um, that you guys hopefully will start hearing a lot about next week. Um, We're developing um, I'm helping contribute to the content they're developing for an app that's trying to make the youth sport experience more positive for youth soccer players, recreational youth soccer players. Um, so I get to do some of that on the side. So I'm I'm interested in both. I'm interested in mental health benefits of exercise and then also their promotion of physical activity um, through creating positive youth sport experiences.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, that's great. A great kind of background and just introduction to kind of what you're up to and uh, some of the stuff you're interested in, I think like, I want to definitely talk about the Alzheimer's stuff with that, because we've had that topic in the past on the show. And I know it's been something that has I've seen floating around a bit as to just like the exercise and, and that and how that maybe relates. So we can definitely jump into that. I want to kind of look at this maybe through like two other pathways as well, which kind of will one of them will tie into to Alzheimer's uh, is just kind of this like age grouping type of side of things like how does it maybe let's start with that one actually maybe the I think the question is probably best said like what are the benefits cognitively to exercise at like an adolescent age or what we would envision to be like kind of our elementary middle school high school age groupings and then into like early adulthood middle age and then ultimately kind of like the the older years of our lives is there big discernible differences there? Or is it something where it's like, you gotta be doing it regardless and you just gotta find something that is gonna work for you. And if that changes throughout your life, just follow your interest more so than anything.
1: Yeah, well, I I like the way you've approached that um, because I really like Zach thinking about sort of a lifespan approach, right? So um, when you, I'll probably have to answer this on several different levels, but when we think about the benefits of physical activity for cognition, we, we could be thinking about like a single dose. Like you just, you just uh, get out there and exercise once for one session and do you see any benefits? We could also be thinking about sort of like a commitment to exercise, right? So you're a regular exerciser, you're exercising three or more days a week, you're meeting the physical activity recommendations um, and sort of what are those long-term effects? So let's start with single session. If we think about a single session of exercise, then the groups in which we see the biggest benefits tend to be the groups at either ends of the age spectrum. So with children to adolescents, we'll see pretty big uh, benefits of a single session of exercise. With older adults, we'll see a pretty big benefit from a single session of exercise. But if you're talking about young adults, college age, um, up into probably middle age, 45, 50, up into those ages, you're not gonna see as big an effect from a single session unless the person is somehow compromised, right? So imagine that you um, are extremely fatigued. Well, counterintuitive, maybe, but if you're extremely fatigued, your cognitive performance is probably suffering. And so now a single session of exercise might really help you. If you have some sort of a chronic illness, some, something that's debilitating in some way, impacting your immune system that might be impacting you and your cognitive abilities, then a single session of exercise might matter. So if you're if you're somebody who's a cancer survivor um, and you've experienced what we call sort of a chemo fog or a brain fog related to the chemotherapy treatments you've had, well now a single session of exercise might make a bigger difference for you. So let me pause there and see if you have any questions, Zach. And then if not, I'll start talking about sort of the long term exercise.
0: Yeah, that's really cool to to kind of hear that that there's like that big that that more like. A, like a obtuse improvement on a single session on the polar ends. I guess it kind of makes sense to a degree because it's like you're introducing a stimulus that's maybe a little bit more foreign to that grouping. Although the younger kids would maybe kind of by default find it a little more readily.
1: Well, it's not, it's not actually the lack of exposure as much as it is sort of where the brain is developmental. Oh, So when you think about kids, their, their brain is um, growing, if you will, Mm -hmm. developing through that time span through adolescence until they're physically mature. And because of that, because the brain isn't fully at its optimal level as yet, a single session of exercise can give them a little bump. Mm. With older adults, they're starting to experience some declines in their cognitive abilities that are age-related. So because they're starting to see some declines, now they have room for improvement in response to something that's a positive, which is like an exercise session. Um, And then to go with my other examples, um, like when I think of college students, because I'm around them all the time, if they've got a rough week and they're studying a lot and they're up a lot and they're, and they're tired and they are getting ready to take an exam. Well, the one thing that could really help them is to have an exercise session before they go to take that test, because that exercise is going to sort of give them back, if you will, some of what they've lost because they're fatigued.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I want to hop into that a little bit before we move on to long-term in just like kind of the dosage side of things, because I would imagine there's like, there's a margin of diminishing returns with some of this stuff where like, if I go out and say, I'm going to do some short intervals as a way to kind of just spark my mind up. And I'm, I'm a big advocate of this because I just know from years and years of just training that if I go into a workout in the morning, I just am way more productive the rest of the day. Like I'm just more snappy with my decision-making. Like it's just like, it flows really nicely. Whereas if I just kind of wake up and meander over to the computer and start my workday, it feels like I'm just never really jump-starting anything. Yeah. Uh, but there is the kind of crossover point that I noticed with myself personally, where if I go out and I say, I do those short intervals, but I go to absolute failure mm-hmm. and I'm just like, you know, just staggering back into the house. Now I just want to lay around all day long. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. So how so, do we, yeah? You're yeah. exactly right. So 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 what we think is that moderate intensity exercise is would be the ideal um, intensity at which to perform. Although what you said is absolutely true, there's a growing body of evidence suggesting that high intensity interval training can also have these cognitive benefits. But you wouldn't want to go to exhaustion. You wouldn't want to go until you know complete failure, because then you've you know I just talked about sort of fatigue on the system. If you're going to overly fatigue the system. Then that's also going to have negative consequences for your cognitive performance, right? You've got to, your body's got to have time to recover. Um, one of the things that's really cool that we've seen is that when we look at memory, the kind of activity you just talked about, where you go now, now in a laboratory, whenever people into a lab, I don't have them work as hard as you're working, Zach. I'm sure, <laughs> but I have them go to a pretty high intensity, right, higher than we might normally select. And what I see is that the short-term memory benefits are not that evident. But if I have them do, do like recollect, recollection of that task 24 hours later, it's the higher intensity group that's getting the bigger benefit 24 hours later. Hmm. And that, Zach, I think is just so fascinating. It's something that we're, we're hoping to explore more in my own laboratory, trying to understand why that would be the case. I, I think it may have to do with some of the um, changes that are happening internally in response to that high intensity exercise having like a lingering long-term effect because they're helping with memory consolidation. And so we might not see it in the short term, but we can we can observe that as a benefit to performance 24 hours later. We haven't looked out further than that yet, but my guess is that we might see it even further out as well. So So what that means is, if I go back to sort of my college student example, right? If they're trying to, if a student was trying to memorize information for a test, like think anatomy, I'm just trying to remember um, the names of the muscles and the bones. And so it's, it's literally a lot of memorization. Well, if I have to take the test tomorrow, high intensity exercise about the, the morning of today before I study may actually benefit me more than a lighter intensity or a lower intensity. But if I've got the test tonight and I'm going to study, I might want to do just a moderate intensity before that studying period, because I'll see the benefits. Uh, I'm more likely to see the benefits in the short term than the long term.
0: That's really interesting. And I have like a similar example that I would do when I was in college. I was, I was just, I'm just young enough where you could start to record and download MP3s to, like, you know, to a small yeah. enough device that you wouldn't be too tedious to carry around with you when you were running. And, you know, I was competing in track and cross country. So a big chunk of my week came with, with practice and things like that. And some of it was, you know, independent where I'd go for a run in the afternoon or something like that by myself versus with the team. And one thing I started doing during that phase when I would have like exams start rolling around is I would have, um, I was a social studies major. So like a lot of times we'd have like written exam type stuff where it was like a big question with a long form response. And I would just bullet point kind of like what I wanted to hit on in the possible questions I thought were going to be asked. And then I would just listen to that on on a, an MP3 player as I was running and it would have been low to moderate intensity. Right. So like, yeah, I do that sometimes right before the actual exam itself and you go in there, I just felt like I could just pour it all out. It was, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I was extra excited about it too, because I'm killing two birds with one stone here. I'm studying and running at the same time. I don't have to do one and then the other
1: and I eat up twice as much time. (laughs) I mean, it's so fun for me to talk to somebody who's really, you know, like implemented these things in practice and, and sort of figured it out from um, your own you know your own sort of problem solving. How am I going to get this studying in, while well, I've also got to get this training in? Well, let me see what happens if I do them together. And you're basically kind of problem solving and figuring out. Wow, that seems to really help me. And in fact, that's that's then supported by the research evidence that we have.
0: That's funny. And the the other thing I do more recently now that I've noticed just kind of by default that kind of lines up with what you were saying as well is if I'm running low to moderate intensity stuff, I I'm usually listening to something when I run by myself, whether it be music or a podcast, those are usually the two things I kind of go back and forth with. And if it's low moderate, I just default to a podcast. I'd rather listen to that. I'd rather learn something as I'm kind of moving through that. I'm trying to almost avoid like a spike in an adrenaline to a degree. Cause I'm trying to not run very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so music is maybe counterproductive to some degree with that. But then once I start getting into some of like the longer intervals the short intervals or what we call like a tempo run essentially intensities that range from what i could do all out for like 60 minutes all the way down to like what i could do all out for maybe 12 minutes so it's definitely moderate and above uh that's where like i if i have a podcast on i'm doing it i may as well not even have it on like i'm not gonna recall any of it yeah Yeah. Uh, so like that's when i default to music and i feel like that usually like has worked well for me at the end of one level um, but it, it's interesting that it kind of lines up with, what you said, just like having to, I guess, maybe the higher intensity stuff is cognitively enough demanding by adding another input. At that point, you're just kind of overriding uh, your operating system, so to speak. Maybe I just have a really low operating system.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. And, 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 and actually, it's like to bring up a different point too, when you talk about this, because now you're talking about exercise during the study, right? Mm-hmm. So So when I first started talking, I was talking about exercise prior to studying, if you will, prior to listening to something or trying to remember something or learn something. What you're talking about is doing them simultaneously. And what you're describing is exactly right. So it is hard. High intensity exercise requires enough attentional demands that it is hard to dual task while you're doing something that's at high intensity, right? If you were able to, and you could pay attention, who knows? Maybe you would remember it better. But you've already self-discovered that for you, there are certain intensities where there's no way that I can also pay attention to something that requires some, some, some thought, right? That, that, that's not just music. So, um, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's really interesting to think about how, how we can, and it makes exercise hard to study because you can implement it in so many different ways, right? Like you said, if you get up in the morning and exercise, you feel like you're pretty good all day. Right. Well, what Mm -hmm. if you I don't know if you do this, act, but what if you exercise in the morning, you're good until lunch and then you take a 30 minute break to go for a walk. Does that give you an extra boost for the afternoon or or did the morning do enough? Right. Mm -hmm. So so exercise. I mean, it's such it's such a fascinating topic really, to study. You kind of think I think some people think studying exercise. Well, that's ridiculous. We know everything we need to know about exercise, but that's so far from the truth because it's such a complex behavior that can be implemented in so many different ways. And you've already mentioned intensity, you've mentioned interval versus continuous, um, you've mentioned time of day, there's so many things. We haven't even really talked about mode because so far I think you've really been thinking about running or talking about running, but what about strength training? What about yoga? What about other types of physical activity and movement? What about dance that might have different types of cognitive benefits?
0: Mm Hmm, and that's a really good point too. Because one thing I I tend to try to advocate for, because people do look at me and think, okay, he's an ultra marathon runner. He's clearly going to try to talk me into running some crazy long distance race. But in reality, I realize that like for me, that's a huge motivator, huge driver, something I'm very curious about and interested in. But someone else might hate that, and it would be like pulling teeth every day to get them to go out and do the training required to run, you know, something that's fifty kilometers or further. So why are they banging their head against the wall doing that when their, their main objective is health and well being? So there's just so many, at some point we separate ourselves from like this kind of playfulness that you have maybe in elementary school, middle school, and you go out for recess and you have like, like a list of options to do and you just pick whichever Mm -hmm. one you like to do. And they're all probably great from a health standpoint. Uh, But as adults, I think we sometimes get into this, we pigeonhole ourselves and think like, well, I've got this gym membership, so I should go and. You know, hop on the Stairmaster or start lifting weights or something like that. Or I can run. That's pretty low bar bar to entry. Maybe I'll do that. But, you know, we see, I think we're starting to see people kind of come around to this a little bit more where um, I think like pickleball from when I first started (laughs) becoming an adult to now, I just feel like that sport's gotten more and more popular every year. Yeah, sure (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. has.
0: Um, And it's just, it's one of those where you maybe wouldn't expect. uh, But, but I think it is interesting to I mean, we could go down a huge rabbit hole with this too, where it's like a lot of the kind of foundational sports at the middle school, high school level are also ones that are maybe a little more difficult to continue as an adult. When you think of like football, volleyball, basketball, softball, baseball, and those sort of things. Um, but there still are a lot of options. I think if people want to look for them, they'll find one they like.
1: Well, I think, um, you know, one of, the, one of the positives that has come out of this COVID pandemic is that people have been forced to really figure out how to become active at home. You know, most of the gyms closed and the fitness centers closed. Some have reopened in some places in the country, but a lot of places they're still shut down. And so I mean, I think I thought it was really it was really neat last summer to find out that our local bike stores had no bikes left. Yeah. Right. And I think that probably happened across the country. And and I'm a big walker. I love to be out walking. I love to ride my bike. And it is just, it's, it's almost crowded now Mm -hmm. right like it's almost crowded where i go to walk it has never been crowded there's never been families out walking and biking the way that that i would love to see them and so i hope i hope that once life returns to normal begins to return to normal that people will maintain the skill sets that they've developed which have allowed them to figure out how to be active even if the gym's closed or even if i can't get to the gym today because i don't have enough time and hopefully those will will linger you know and will allow people to just be more um more creative sort of in coming up ways to to stay active. Mm -hmm.
0: All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in the traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drink. LMNT.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, you hit it on the head. I see the same thing out here in Phoenix where as soon as the gyms got closed kind of earlier in the COVID timeline, it, it, I'd go out to the trails in my backyard and I was like, well, there just seems to be more people. And these were w- the warmer months of the year too, where like, right. normally right. I, I could be out there in the, like an entire 10 mile by 10 mile preserve by myself. I went out at two in the afternoon in the middle of summer. <laughs> right.
1: now, but, now there's people out there. Yeah. uh
0: huh. Yeah. So it is cool to see people kind of branching out. And the way I look at it is like, uh, we didn't get into this, but I used to be a teacher before I kind of started going more professional with endurance sport. And one thing that uh, I always notice as a teacher with the students, and I think this just carries over into adults. And I think exercise is going to fit right in there is people just do better when they have options to pick from. Mm -hmm. So like, if I tell someone like this is what you have to do to be healthy and it's this very narrow channel. I mean, if I hit on someone who falls in like to the five or 10% of the population who that particular narrow channel happens to work for great, they're going to, they're going to thrive. But if I hit someone else, who is the opposite of that channel, they're going to fail and struggle and ultimately step back. So when I think of like folks who traditionally just went to the gym to work out, maybe they missed one out of every three workouts because it's easy to come up with one excuse, not to go to do one specific thing. But when you have a list of three different potential activities you can choose from, it's a lot harder to justify skipping that workout, especially if you have the time for it.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we, we've been talking about cognition, but if you, if we think of mental health benefits of exercise more broadly, um, the vast majority of the evidence that we've seen suggests that really just doing something is going to give you those mental health benefits. So even if I can't get to the gym for the hard workout that I plan, if I can still get a walk in or a bike ride in or hop on a treadmill or do something to be physically active for 20 to 30 minutes that day, I am going to get those mental health benefits. And and. I've already mentioned COVID once, but that, but it's even more important now because people are dealing with so many negative mental health types of issues right now because this COVID pandemic is so hard on all of us. So if, if, if folks can find a way to be physically active, then not only is it gonna benefit cognition, but it's also gonna benefit their mood, it's gonna reduce their depression, um, it's gonna reduce anxiety, it's gonna reduce stress, it has all of these positive benefits um, and it doesn't take much. And I think your your point's a really good one, Zach. If you have a list of things that you like to do, that can help you because maybe some of those are indoors and some of those are outdoors. Some of those maybe require somebody else being there to do it with you and the others you can do on your own. But well, if you have those kinds of flexible options, then no matter what a given day is like, um, you can figure out an option that will work for you on that day.
0: Cool, yeah. The, the thing, the follow-up I have with that is just uh, when I think of... Um when I think of just the the options that you can kind of pick from and just implementing that, I think, I, I think of this in two ways. So kind of back to what I originally said, where people having more than one reason or more than one option to pick from is ultimately going to make a more sustainable, like long-term solution. And I'm just, I'm really interested in these folks who or these stories, a lot of times, sometimes they'll reach out to me, which I'm really fortunate to be able to have direct access sometimes, where you have someone who was like 400 plus pounds and they lost like literally half their body weight. And now they're like at the point they wanted to be for like sometimes over a decade. And I'm always interested in those stories just because, like, I think most people can probably stick to a lifestyle alteration for like a month if they need to lose a couple pounds. But when your end goal is years down the road, that's where you have to really be thinking long-term and like, well, what is actually going to work with versus be a, you know, a yo-yo approach where I'm going to hit a dead end and fall back to where I started and just keep beating myself up with, over this. And what you said, I think is just another tool for the toolkit where like if I am a someone who is very out of shape and in, in, in dire straits health-wise, and I need more reasons than just, okay, I have this limited amount of movement I can actually tolerate at the moment. Having that added benefit where you can say to yourself, well, I'm making progress towards my weight loss goal or my health and fitness goal. But even if I don't make perfect progress with that today, I'm getting some of these mental benefits as well along the side. So they just have more, more reasons to be focusing on the day-to-day stuff, which I think is what's going to kind of keep you motivated. If you can find wins that are daily, if not uh, multi-daily hit times to kind of keep you consistent with that type of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you brought that up because, um, you know, one of the, one of, for, for regular folks, not, not people who are, are exercising because they're athletes, but for folks who are exercising for the physical activity benefits, which are, um, you know, include physiological benefits, you know, heart health, lowering blood pressure, things like that. Um, but the, the number one physical reason people are exercising is to maintain or lose weight. Well, the challenge with that, which I think you were just alluding to, Zach, is that, you know, weight loss through exercise is going to be a long term commitment. And if, you know, if you do what many of us do and you, you, you sort of replace the calories you burned exercising with calories that you're eating on the sofa, then you're not going to see that weight loss. And so it's, it's hard to have that be your primary reason for exercise unless you're very, very committed even if that is your primary reason and you are very committed and you've got a plan where you're gonna reduce intake and also increase your your, um, expenditure of calories, you're still not gonna see the benefits for weeks or months, right? You can get on the scale every morning and not see a benefit until a long amount of time has passed when you're actually gonna start to see that weight loss. So it's really important to have multiple reasons why you're exercising. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Zach, because the feel-good benefits of exercise you can get every single day, the stress reduction benefits you can experience and observe and know are happening every single day. I we've had um, I'm in North Carolina, so we had two days of just the most ugly weather you can imagine as that snowstorm. And they got a lot of snow up north. We got rain and sleet and ooh. Um, the I worst didn't stuff to train
0: training. Was that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, best, the worst stuff to train. <laughs> I
1: didn't figure out a way to get active the last two days in a row. I had lots of excuses. I had worked long days. The weather was terrible. Blah blah blah. It's dark. Really, all that. But I have not slept well in two days. Until yesterday, I got my walk in hour long walk in yesterday. Slept like a baby. So it's it's a reminder when we pay attention to it of how important that exercise is because it gives us better sleep quality. It gives us a more positive mood. It gives us less depression, less anxiety, less stress, all of those things. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that daily as you're, as you're getting your exercise routine going.
0: Yeah, that that's a really good point. And it, it kind of reflects back on something else you mentioned earlier that I meant to follow up on, which was just when you look at the, the mental benefits of exercise, it literally does. It just feeds into the loop. Those benefits are going to be what encourage you to get up and do it again the next day. That's right. It's one of those things where it's, I feel like it's such a steep drop off for folks who, who like have a, a point where they fail and then they don't get back on the horse because then they don't have that reminder now. So now they're not getting that reminder of why they're doing it. And so they're, they're kind of missing multiple opportunities versus just one. So I think you're right. Like maybe, maybe the add on to this is some sort of like reflection or journaling that you can do to kind of document the way you feel on days like that versus the ways you don't. So that when you do find yourself in a rut where like, okay, I missed three days of exercise. I'm losing motivation. I'm disconnected from the feel good that I get from that, or it's getting overpowered powered by my drive to sit on the couch, <laughs> right, right? which is always there for everyone at some point. And it's like, you know, like having that journal to maybe look back on and say like, wow, these days, clearly stand out as better life experiences yeah. than these days, I need to get back to that.
1: Yeah, that's a great behavioral technique to try to keep up with something like exercise that again is it's, it's hard, it's hard to be active every day. There And there's lots of ready made excuses, whether or work or stressors or whatever. Um, but it is so important. And if you use a journaling technique, then that would be a great way to remind yourself, you know, when you look back, oh, that's the week where I exercised every day. And Listen to how positive I am or, or rate your own mood. Look at how, how I felt good and how my mood was more positive and my sleep quality was better and all these, all these positive things. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I was going to mention about that is, um, and because, Zach, I know a lot of your listeners are, are athletes and so they're training for athletic competitions, you know, one of the challenges is for people who that's their primary reason for exercise. So what happens when you're no longer competitive? Or what happens when you have an injury that means that you can't compete? How do you then motivate yourself to exercise? Well, it's it's really important. You know, I'm just sort of tying into this idea of multiple reasons. It's really important that our athletes as well recognize the benefits that they're getting that aren't just about competitive drive and competitive outcomes, but are about what they're doing for their own physical and mental health through their regular training.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I know a topic that I see coming up now more and more is like very high level professional athletes talking about just kind of the, like the post event depression type of a mentality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you go from this very structured, almost regimental lifestyle where you wake up every day and you know, what's coming and you, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging, but those folks tend to kind of thrive in those environments. Mm -hmm. And then I think the Olympics are probably the best example of this because it's, it's not frequently it's every four years. So you have this big multi-year buildup and then this ultimate climax at the event itself. And then all of a sudden, like you're in a position where maybe that's the end of the road for you as a career. Cause in reality, how many people are going to compete in multiple Olympic games. Right. And even if you are, you're four years out from that next big stage. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you kind of have this post event like depression where now that structure is removed at least to the level that it was going into the, to the competition. And they're kind of left wondering like what to do and like how to do it. And I mean, I doubt those individuals are just wholesale, not working out at all anymore. So they're probably getting that that, at least the minimum dosage of movement. But is there, I guess my question with that, is there like a kind of an adaptation thing going on where you get someone who does kind of fine tune their fitness to the degree where it takes quite a bit of physical stimulus to elicit a response where if they like reduce volume and intensity by say like 50%, are they going to struggle to get those benefits since it's not kind of at the level that they physically kind of condition themselves to be able to get that from,
1: you know, that's a really interesting question. I don't, I don't know that we have any empirical data that would speak to that, Zach. I mean, that's the the group that you're describing there is a group that, you know, is busy doing what they need to do. They're not coming into our labs to be studied. Right. right? (laughs) So it's, so it's hard to know about that. We do know, you know, a couple of things in response to that. We do know, for instance, that college athletes, um, when you look at their physical activity post-college, they tend to be less active than some of their uh, colleagues in school who were not collegiate-level athletes. So, so the athletes who, like if you think about it at a university setting, you've got athletes who are staying physically active through college, and they're doing it through maybe club sport participation or intramurals, or we usually have, all, you know, most universities have really lovely uh, student recreation centers. So they figured out a way to stay active like that. Well, when the university years end, depending on where they end up, they may have some of the same options available. So like in Phoenix, there's great adult leagues for soccer and for basketball and for kickball and softball and baseball. And so if you're a recreational level athlete, you can continue to stay active in adult leagues in most big, uh, you know, big metropolitan types of areas. Even smaller places, have nice fitness centers and YMCAs and recreation centers and Gold's gyms and everything else where you can go exercise. But if you're an athlete, if you're a a college athlete, you haven't figured all those things out on your own, you've been told what to do. You might not even go to the student rec center because you have your own fitness training facility that's just for athletes. So when your four years um, as a university athlete ends, you don't have the same skill sets or the same motivation or the same, you know, you brought it up earlier, Zach, sort of the same flexibility in how you view yourself and in the activities that are appropriate for you, right? So for many college athletes, there's a dramatic decline in their physical activity, not just from where they were, but even lower than non-varsity uh, you know, non athletes who, who, who got through the university staying active. So it's really, I mean, it's really kind of fascinating to think about. Um, I think it's hard. You know, I think it's hard for people who were, runners or bikers or downhill skiers and who all of their training was about their performance in those sports to then figure out, wait, do I just walk? Do I just jog? Do I just, you know, it's, it's not the same. And so it's, I think it's really important that we, um, we as, as kinesiologists and physical activity advocates Help work with people who have never exercised and people who have exercised at this really high level um, to be competitive. All of these groups need attention in terms of having the proper skill sets to stay active when they're not when they're not doing it for some for some other reason. I guess is what I was thinking for the athletes, right? If they're not if they're not being active in competition.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point because it. I mean, it makes perfect sense when you think of the recreational collegiate like, I guess, fit health and fitness enthusiast, almost at that point, they're they're there for two reasons, probably to have fun. So they're picking a sport that they actually like, and they're there to, you know, find that replacement for whatever, like sport, maybe they were doing in high school, they're trying to, you know, find a way to move themselves and stay physically active and enjoy it at the same time. So like, you know, they leave college and they have essentially that same motivation, that same goal with it. So whatever yep. they end up finding is kind of within that same realm. Whereas, yeah, you get like a, in a collegiate football player. It's like, what are they going to do when they turn 23, graduate, get a different right. job? So their lifestyle completely changes now That's too. So That's yeah. right.
1: <laughs> and yeah, and it, nobody's telling them they have to, they have to exercise anymore. There's not, a, there's not a strength and conditioning coach to work mm-hmm. with them anymore, right? So not, not that they don't know how to do it. But now they've got to find different motivators to replace what they had, And you mentioned the toolbox. They need need like a toolbox of ways to figure out, okay, what does this mean for me so that I can maintain my activity level? And let me me make sure, Zach, that I get back to sort of, I I wanted to make sure I got back to this notion of a single session of exercise versus chronic exercise. Chronic or regular physical activity is critically important at all age levels because what it's doing is it's building a healthy brain. And that, you know, that makes sense. If, you, if we accept that being physically active makes a healthy heart, then we should equally readily accept that being physically active builds a healthy brain. And we know that. We have lots of research evidence that shows that. So, you know, even for somebody who's 25 to 50, who might not see the, the same immediate benefits of a single session, if they can maintain their physical activity lifestyle, They're going to do all kinds of things to improve their brain health in ways that will benefit them into advancing. Well, benefit them right now. I've got to make sure I say that. will benefit them right now, but will also have lasting effects um, that will last, you know, as long as they last, (laughs) depending on if they stay active or not into advancing, you know, into into older age. But we know that people who are more active when they're 20 to 50, reduce their risk of Alzheimer's when they're 65, when they're 70, when they're 80. So midlife physical activity is also incredibly important.
0: Interesting. Is it, is it fair to kind of say then, like if when we look at, like you mentioned the heart, but also just like your skeletal muscle system in general, or it's kind of a use it or lose it type of a mentality mm-hmm. where like once I kind of build up a solid base of strength, I don't have to do as much to maintain it. Mm-hmm. But I need to maintain it because if yeah. it starts going away, it's gonna be a lot harder to kind of start that process in like my 50s or 60s and expect the same results as I've had done that in my 20s. And with the brain, it sounds like that's kind of the same thing where like, if you get complacent with it, it just kind of like down regulates to the point where well, it, basically, it's like a stress response thing almost where if you don't stress it, it doesn't see the incentive of firing up, maybe am, am I getting way off?
1: Yeah, this. no, well, and you're, what you're actually doing is I think you're bringing in some other ideas as well, which is that um, brain health isn't only determined by physical activity, although I think physical activity is a very important contributor, um, but there are other things that we do, mentally engaging activities, our, our work, what we do for a living, um, There, you know, there are other types of activities, social engagement, that, that help brain health. And so it's not only physical activity, but physical activity, we sure have a lot of evidence about
0: how powerful the benefits of physical activity are for brain health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and that makes sense too. Cause I, I, re, I remember seeing, I think it was a story where they were talking about crossword puzzles or something like that, where like, yes. it's it just, if, especially like once you retire because you know, a lot of folks, they may have a mentally challenging job and they're getting that stimulus by default by just going to work every day and then you retire and you could just daydream all day if you wanted to. So yeah. it's like, how do you replace that or what do you replace that with?
1: Yeah and and being physically active even in older age we still see benefits. So somebody who's been sedentary their whole life, relatively sedentary their whole life, if they start a physical activity program, 3 days a week moderate intensity exercise for 6 months, we can observe changes in the structure of the brain in response to that 6 months of exercise. So it's not, you know, it it, it, it is true that it's important to keep it up on a regular basis, but I wouldn't want anybody to hear me or anybody else say, so if you haven't kept it up, it's too late. It's actually never too late. It's actually never too late because no matter how old you are, starting to be regularly active is going to have benefits and we can observe those behaviorally and we can observe those when we do brain scans, we can observe those when we look at um, biomarkers in the blood. There's all kinds of ways that we can observe those benefits.
0: Excellent. Hey folks, I wanna make a quick shout out to some of my personal athlete sponsors and offer all of you some discount options if you think my gear is also right for you. My shoe of choice, Ultra Footwear, is offering listeners 15% off. They make a foot-shaped, balanced, cushioned shoe that fits like a glove. S-Fuels is offering 5% off, and they are my go-to low-carb workout and lifestyle product of choice. EggWeights is offering 15% off their running form strength work and recovery products finally purpose performance wear is offering 10% off my favorite workout apparel including my own signature series so head over to zachbitter.com forward slash my gear or the profile link on my social media channels to check out these discounts and more all right folks now back to the show I've got one more kind of age related thing, and then if if you want, we can move on to some of the some of the other interesting topics like Alzheimer's or any type of like mental type disease and how exercise fits into that sure. uh, But when we're looking at like the youth side of things, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always heard that your brain essentially continues to develop until you're about twenty five and that's kind of when it's uh when you've kind of hit that point but at, on the same regard, a huge chunk of that development is in those earlier years. So it's almost like a very steep upward slope and then a more gradual linear slope up until you're 25. Is, is there anything about that window of time that's especially important or unique with exercise?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And that's why, that's why we think physical activity is so important for children and adolescents Um, because it's a time when they can accelerate, accelerate is not the right word. Let me think about this, not accelerate, but, um, enhanced maybe is a better word where if if kids are physically active then the things that are happening naturally in terms of their brain development are going to be um i'm afraid to use optimized because we wouldn't have evidence to show that that's like optimal you know per se Mm -hmm. like some some target but are enhanced that's the best word way to say it so um yeah that's why that's why a lot of the intervention work has really been looking at children and looking at older adults because like i was saying before they're They're on a decline now. Well, if I can slow that decline, that's going to be really important. The kids are on an upward slope. So if I can accelerate that slope or improve their brain health um, in a more robust way, that's probably the best way to say it. Then that's going to have long lasting effects that are going to stay with them through adulthood.
0: Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I've got one more cognitive movement story to share that I I thought of uh, actually this morning as I was getting ready for this interview. And when I was teaching... I did, uh, I did a few different things. I was certified in social studies as well as special education. So uh, for a couple of years, I was working with seven, seventh graders with uh, most of them had some form of like learning, learning disability. So it was, uh, it was, it was kind of a, a group of kids where you kind of almost had to know to know, because they do a very good job of kind of coping with with just navigating in the environment that they're in. But ultimately they'd have these individualized education plans, which was essentially a target to say like, well, the traditional way of educating this student doesn't yield the results that would, if we did it an alternative way. So they kind of have this, this plan that follows them around to help us like as teachers recognize, well, what is going to be a big mover for this person? And kind of in the same timeline, I was working on my professional development plan. And one of the things I was interested in was like, movement and the learning process. So I had a group of uh, a group of students who we were working on, like their, their spelling, I think they're, yeah, they're seventh graders. So they were working on spelling and, and uh, I mean, they, they came to me with very low scores. I mean, we're talking like 20, 30% scores on like these, like, you know, 20 word spelling tests that they would take. And, and one thing I did to try to get them motivated as well as kind of excited about just rehearsal essentially, was, um, we would do this game where, uh, they would work on kind of spelling a word by, and it required them getting up out of their desk, walking to the other side of the room, like hanging something on a board and walking back. So there was like a bit of a competition and a movement component to it. So like, it was, it was amazing to me as I would like track their progress throughout those, those experiences. And I mean, I had kids that were going from like 20 to 30% scores on their spelling tests to like 90% to 100% in a lot of cases. And, and, and these weren't students that were taking those things home and learning them afterwards, you know, as well on top of it, not above and beyond what they would have anyway. So it was, there were some confounders in there. Obviously you had the, the competition component. Sometimes that maybe like, uh, elicits a little bit of a, an extra incentive to, to know it or do well on it. Um, at least a motivational side, but I think the movement thing played a big role in it as well, where they were doing moderate, low intensity movement. No one was jumping over desks or hurtling other students, uh, at least not while I was there. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they, but, but they were moving and they, it was, it was visibly obvious that they were enjoying it a lot more than if I had just said, okay, we're going to work on breaking down this word and sounding it out and kind of doing it a little more of a direct instructional route. So that was uh one of my first experiences to like adolescent movement education learning type of stuff that I thought was a really interesting kind of Well
1: I think I, I think you know, I think that kind of approach is um, you know, gathering some steam in educational settings where um, you know, there's so many factors that we brought into that, Zach. So there's obviously there's no way we could say it's the, it's the physical activity all mm-hmm. by itself that mattered because what you did is not the same as asking somebody to walk a lap around the track, right? What you did. <laughs> Was incorporate movement and physical activity into an activity that allowed for kinesthetic learning, allowed for motivation, allowed for fun, allowed for competition, allowed for some intrinsic motivation, and also was physically active and inc- incorporated movement. All of those things combined, I'm sure, um, are, are are contributing to the to the benefits that you observed. So, what's interesting to think about is, you know, if, if I'm always thinking about it from a science perspective, if I wanted to study that. I would have to figure out a way to isolate the physical activity. Um, and maybe I would do it not by isolating physical activity and have them walk around a track where everything else is gone. But maybe what I would do is have the exact activity you, des- you described. But in one situation there, they're doing it somehow at their desk or virtually. So they're not getting up and moving, but they've got all the other things, the fun, the competition, the motivation. And then in another situation, I have them doing it, but getting up and moving like you suggested, like going across the room. Then if I found out that the, the, the one that, you know, everybody gets something good, but if they get good plus physical activity, is that better? Mm-hmm. Then I could actually try to find out and tease apart a little bit if the physical activity had any unique contri- contribute, contributing role, you know, to the benefits that were observed. Yeah. It's, it's been fun for me to see how classroom teachers um, have have figured out ways to engage movement, to incorporate movement into the classroom in ways that they view as contributing to rather than detracting from the learning experience. And I think when you get motivated teachers who figure out how to do that, I think it is absolutely to the kids' benefits, whether they're special needs or whether they're just your average kid. You know, when we, when we take children and ask them to sit all day in the classroom, that is an ant- antithetical to mm-hmm. what we actually want for children. We want them to be active and to be moving, and we know that it benefits them. And so as we can figure out how to make more active classrooms, I think that's going to be um, to the great benefit of kids.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you actually made me think of one other thing I have to ask. It's uh, it's to do with almost the opposite end of the spectrum because the majority of my students, yeah, they prefer to get up. If we would have recess all day, they would jump, jump at that opportunity. But there always was one or two kids that uh, – it, that that would kind of pull away from that to a degree where they they may, they just didn't have that maybe driver motivation to get out and move and it, it gets, gets tough to understand exactly what the reasoning is behind that because you you hate to see it when it's something where it's like fear induced or bully induced or something like that where they would actually want to do it but they choose not to because it's a negative experience due to the environment but i would have students where they they would just rather sit and read like if i gave them the opportunity to stay inside and read a book so not like a uh, maladaptive behavior. It's not like they're sitting there playing video games while everyone else is right outside, but it was a lot harder to get them to kind of come out and and do do some sort of physical activity. But I would imagine for even that type of personality, it still benefits them to do it. Is there kind of any tricks or like a, a piece of advice with a with a student like that that you've seen?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, you've just described my daughter. Okay. <laughs> my daughter is a wonderful young person. Um, but all of her activities that she prefers, the things that bring her the most joy in life, are sedentary activities. She's an incredible reader, an incredible student, a painter, an artist. All of those things could keep her in her room all day long. And so what we what we've tried to do is just to figure out something that she is at least willing to do, and then to figure out a way to make it enjoyable for her. So um, we have we have implemented. And I, A practice by which we ask her to walk with us every day for usually 50 minutes to an hour she has her phone in her pocket and she's listening to music and we're having conversations and i tell you zach when we first started she didn't love it when we first started she was only doing it because her parents were asking her or or almost demanding her to do it that's a little hard but (laughs) but we're really it was a strong request we think this is important for you for your health your well-being And you need these skill sets when you, when you're an adult. So we would, we would get her to walk with us. um, And she didn't like it at first at all. And at first it was more like pulling teeth. Now we've been doing it in six months. It's always sort of a magical, you know, where something becomes more habit six months at about the six months point, things started to really change for her where I wouldn't, I still wouldn't say that she loves it, but it's not that something that she dreads. So now if I say, Hey, let's go for a walk. It's like, okay, let me grab my coat and my shoes. And it's, it has become something that I think she now recognizes the value of because of the intrinsic feelings that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Because she knows she feels better about herself when she has walked for an hour every day. And so I think the trick is to make sure that you're helping somebody find something that even if they don't, even if you can't say they enjoy it right now, they're open to it as a way to get to, to be physically active. And then let's try to add things to it that make it enjoyable. Maybe I, I think she would walk with her friends anytime, but she doesn't really want to walk with her parents. She does, and we have great conversations, and i and I value those so much because she's a teenager. Um, but if we if we lived in a neighborhood where she could walk with a friend every day, well, now I've got two, now I've got two teenagers who are walking, and we're trying to make that happen. You know, we let her invite her friends over, and then they walk, they maintain their six-foot distance. And they talk and they catch up because they're doing virtual school sometimes, they don't see each other and they get an hour of activity in. And I, I couldn't be happier as a parent. So, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, I think you said this at the very beginning, Zach, it's not, it's not so much regimenting to somebody what they have to do, but rather helping somebody find something that they could enjoy so that it would be sustainable. And so if that's, you know, if that's buying a stationary bike, because you've got a little spot in your apartment or your home where you can put it and you don't mind doing a stationary bike because you can watch something on TV or read a book while you're doing it, then do that. If it's biking in your neighborhood because you really like getting out and just seeing other people out and about, then do that. You know, If it's walking, do that. If it's swimming, do that. If it's pickleball, do that. You know. Okay. So, I mean, I think, I, I think this point about, yes, there are gonna be people who are reticent to get started, And maybe that's because of a past history that hasn't been as positive. Um, but, But if you're the person in their life that is trying to help them be physically active, then help them figure out something that they enjoy that they can stick with. And whether it's yoga or training for a marathon, find something that they like and are motivated to do so that they can make it sustainable.
0: Excellent. I think we have some some really, really good takeaways so far with the topics we've hit on. And uh, I think it's probably time to move on to some of the stuff you mentioned in the beginning where uh, especially your specific work or interest in, in Alzheimer's, which I think is is obviously been an increasing issue uh, in, in the last like even, even decades, I suppose, where Perhaps some of it is just we know more about it now and therefore it shows itself a little more readily. But also, you know, we have a really unique environment now where even if you look at the last 20 years, lifestyles have changed drastically and people on average are living a bit longer, um, at least when you compare it to like 100 years ago when, you know, a little bit more manual labor was probably the norm for a lot of folks. So what are we seeing with physical movement and what role does it maybe play in kind of the prevention of some of these like, uh, mental, uh, or cognitive decline type issues like Alzheimer's disease?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're bringing up really great points. So you're exactly right. That Alzheimer's disease is, um, rising up the ranks in terms of, um, top causes of mortality. Um, it's in the top 10 in industrialized, uh, kind of higher economic countries, um, it's not as high in countries where people are still living in ways that require more physical activity just from a lifestyle perspective. So um, it's the countries where we're becoming, it seems hard to believe, but even increasingly more sedentary, <laughs> you know, like how could we get more sedentary? But, but it's still, it's getting worse and worse and worse really across at the population level. Um, and because people are living longer because other types of illnesses we're finding solutions to, right? And so people are living longer that's part of why Alzheimer's is becoming um, just increasingly critical in terms of the impact that it has on mortality rates, on individuals, and on their families, right? Um, Alzheimer's is tough because it's such a a really horrific illness, you know, where you see your loved one just declining to the point sometimes where they don't even know their own relatives and and, and are just not even really here anymore. Um, But, There is a lot of evidence that physical activity can delay um, Alzheimer's. Prevent might be too strong, but in some ways I almost want to say prevent because if you can delay Alzheimer's long enough, then somebody will probably die of other causes, right? So if I can help somebody have 10 more years of high quality of life where their cognitive performance and abilities are there, not only are they getting all the personal benefits of that 10 years of life in that they can enjoy it and they have a high quality of life and they can have meaningful interactions with their with their families. Um, but also if I can help them avoid Alzheimer's for 10 years, then you know this will sound sort of harsh, but but they may die from something else like <laughs> a heart attack or cancer. And so in that sense, I would have prevented Alzheimer's for that individual because they never had to experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, the work that we're doing in, in my funded grant right now, um, which is called PAD2 for physical activity and Alzheimer's disease too, um, is we're recruiting people who are 40 to 65 years old, they have a family history of Alzheimer's, and they're currently not meeting physical activity guidelines, and they're currently cognitively normal. And we're going we're gonna to test them at a baseline, we're going to randomly assign them to exercise or not exercise for a year, um, and then we're going to look at what happens over that year. Now we've done some work in this area in the past where we did an eight-month exercise intervention, and what we found was that all of these individuals with a family history of Alzheimer's showed cognitive benefits associated with the physical activity. So we had everybody exercise for eight months, everybody improved in cognition. Now what's important about that is that the everybody that I had in my sample included people who also had a genetic risk for Alzheimer's. So now I've got somebody who's got a family history of Alzheimer's and a genetic risk of Alzheimer's and they're showing cognitive benefits that are associated with their participation in the exercise program. So our new study that we're doing now, what makes it better is that now we have a control group. So now if I find those same benefits, I won't have to just say in association with exercise, I'll be able to say that they were caused by the exercise because I have another group that's not getting the exercise but we're testing them repeatedly. So if that group shows improvements, their improvements would just be because of learning or they're more comfortable with the the testing facility or whatever it might be. But if the exercise group does better, then that means that it's the exercise that did it because that will be the only difference between those groups. And so what's important about this, Zach, let me just make sure I say this because I, I say it and I know it's important, but your, your listeners won't necessarily know. These are people who are cognitively normal 40 to 65. They're in, they're in what I would have to call the prime of their life because I'm in there with them, right? This mm-hmm. is a great time, but they're still seeing cognitive benefits that are associated with the exercise. And we hope to show that is actually caused by the exercise. And let me say one last thing, and I know you're dying to ask a question, <laughs> but people who have the genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's, you can see differences in their brain structure when they're in their 20s. They look different from people who do not have the genetic risk for Alzheimer's. That's scary. That means that their brain health is already changing when they're in their 20s, truly the prime of their life. Right, They've just gone through this developmental change from childhood through adolescence to young adulthood They're in their 20s. Cognitively, this is as good as you get, but we're seeing differences in their brain structure if they have a genetic risk for Alzheimer's. And so it's critically important that we learn what kind of lifestyle interventions, until we have pharmacologic, pharmacological cures for Alzheimer's or other kinds of cures for Alzheimer's, we have to figure out lifestyle interventions that can help protect people so that they maintain their cognitive function longer um, and hopefully are never faced with Alzheimer's.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's always gonna be the people that would prefer a lifestyle intervention as well. So like the having those options and well-documented as to like how they compare to whatever future pharmaceutical thing comes out is I think just, if we have that information ahead of time, that's great because then we don't have to have this debate or argument about like which one is better or has one mm-hmm. got negative side effects and things like that. That's but right. uh, the The interesting thing that I wanted to ask about with with those studies you mentioned and things is uh, it's kind of twofold. One is just like I'm guessing there's been some research done to control for like other lifestyle changes made due to the exercise that may also improve mental health. So mm-hmm. sometimes what I think of if I can get somebody to start to exercise those things we mentioned in the beginning gets them excited to also pull the, or. To, to pull the lever of nutrition. So now they clean up their diet as well. Now yeah. they're just more positive, a little more eccentric. Now I'm gonna go hang out with my friends more. So that social interaction improves and it just kind of snowballs. It snowballs because of the exercise, but those other things are now feeding into the improvements as well. Do you see like independent of that stuff still pretty big improvements from the cognitive side, uh, just generally speaking, and then also with Alzheimer's?
1: Yeah, so I mean, from a research perspective, you do have to be careful when you intervene in that way. So if you're going to ask people to exercise, you're exactly right. You might get other changes associated with that because now they're viewing themselves as somebody who's more healthy and they're doing these things. You know, a couple of responses to that. What is everybody who's recruited has at least made that mental leap of, I want to start exercising. Everybody who's in our study, I want to start exercising and I'm willing to exercise three days a week for the next year if I get assigned to that group. So it is also possible that the control group might start doing something extra. They could even up their exercise a little bit because they sort of made that mental uh, commitment, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to track it, we have to ask them about the changes that they've made and then we have to statistically control for those changes if they're there. Um, we do ask people, we ask people, You know, try not to change anything else in your life because you're part of this research study, but obviously it's it's not. <laughs> It's not like you can't change it and people are going to make some changes. So both basically we can only get at it by sort of instructing them that we would like them not to make changes, but then also trying to measure if they've made any changes so that we can statistically control for that. Mm -hmm. And when we do those things, yes, we still see the exercise making a difference.
0: Yeah. And ultimately, if you run that experiment enough times, you're going to have folks who just don't change anything else. And then you right. can compare them with ones at different tiers even, and maybe come away with even more answers than you intended originally, which is which is good. And And it's also one of those things where it's not like we're talking about introducing something that would negatively impact somebody's longevity or health. So yeah. like, Really, at the end of the day, if interjecting exercise results in a snowball effect of multiple other lifestyle improvement behaviors, we probably walk away winning versus losing (laughs) anyway. Yeah, no, I
1: totally agree with you. And I I think that's fair because, okay, so, so, and and, and I actually feel like I've had this, um, had this conversation or argument, if you will, with funding agencies, because funding agencies can be like, well, how are you going to totally isolate the exercise, like, isolate the exercise from the social interactions. Isolate the exercise from the leaving their home to exercise. Well, I I, I can't do that, and why would I? Exercise includes those things, right? Yeah. So if you ask me to say exercise by itself, like you're exercising on your own at home and you don't get any social interactions, you don't get to leave the house and have that sense of accomplishment, you don't even have to change clothes, like that is, that is exercise but why would I isolate it that much when the way that people normally exercise mm-hmm. is to put on workout clothes and to walk outside of their door and to go somewhere else, whether that's the park where they're going to, you know, just do some circuits or it's a fitness center. And oftentimes those include social interactions. So why would I want to sterilize it when it, it, it doesn't exist as a sterile behavior, right? Mm-hmm. That being said, if we care about causal mechanisms and what's actually the cause, then certainly it helps us to really, you know, to really refine it down so that I can say, you know, I, I would love to be able to say, the type of exercise that you need to do to optimally prevent Alzheimer's is this, but boy, that's hard to do because, you know, so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna compare, you know, walking at a three mile an hour pace to walking at a four mile an hour pace, to walking with a friend, to walking with two friends, to walking outdoors, to walking on a treadmill. Like there's so many things about it, it's so complex that it, it, it will be hard, if not impossible to ever say purely like, it's just this, it's just this that you need. So mm-hmm. what we do instead is we say, this is what exercise means. And when we ask people to exercise like this, we get benefits. So as long as you're within this realm, you should also get those same benefits.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately it just comes down to like properly identifying what you consider exercise, I guess. So like, yeah, yeah if you're studying, points to an improvement as long as the study indicates what we consider exercise is an outdoor activity involving this, this, and that. And you you have all that stuff accounted for, then folks can can decide what they want to do with that information. Um, I like it. I think this is all really cool. And I think it just, it also just highlights like, you know, the reality of life where the field is different than the laboratory in many ways. And sometimes you have to consider, you know, what you can actually do with that information from a lab in a practical way. Uh, and, and sometimes that results better results when you get to the field, sometimes worse. In this case, I think it's better. And I don't know anyone would really argue that for you with you, but.
1: Well, one, one of the cool things that's happened because of COVID is that some of the research we're doing now is more field-based mm-hmm. because it's harder to bring people into a laboratory right now with the COVID pandemic going on. So we're doing some neat things with some telephone-based apps where we can measure cognition relative to people's behaviors in their own real world setting right so i i i'm a, i'm kind of fascinated to see i think there are a lot of creative scientists out there who are going to figure out some ways to continue to do their research in more field based real world settings because of necessity right now because we can't do everything in the lab right now and and that knowledge is going to advance your understanding of what types of activities, in this case, I'm talking exercise, obviously, but what types of exercise might actually provide the benefits that we're, that we're interested in.
0: Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Well, and it's, yeah, I have a, a unique perspective with variance and environment is I've run a hundred miles on mountain trails, on a track and on a treadmill. So I can tell <laughs> you there's, there's different psychology to all three of those for sure. Um, obviously that's an extreme and I'm not doing any myself in a health services by running hundred miles in any location, sure,
1: <laughs> but,
0: right. but it is interesting to think about just how that, like, you know, you, I'm still moving my body. I'm still exerting myself at roughly the same intensity, but the difference there is I'm in a room on essentially a hamster wheel, or I'm out in the wilderness essentially, or I'm on a very controlled, but at least still actual movement. On in like a track type environment, and
1: I, I mean, I think a lot of people can probably relate to that right now, Zach. Because as we were talking about, the, the fitness centers are closed, the gyms mm-hmm. are closed, so the people who are maintaining their physical activity have probably figured out a different way to do it, and it and, and can appreciate them who I like this better because I like being by myself out in the woods on a on a trail, or oh, I really miss doing it on a treadmill, but it's not the treadmill; it's that I liked being at the fitness center and interacting with people at the fitness center. You know, mm-hmm. so I think again, if people sort of self-reflect and figure out it, 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 this may be a time when people can sort of try new things and then figure out, okay, once life gets back to normal, was I as good at going to the fitness center as I am at just walking in my neighborhood? No. So why would I go back to that then? Let me stick with walking in my neighborhood. There must be something I get out of that. You know, I'm just giving like an example, but there must be something I'm getting out of that that that's better for me to make it sustainable. So I think, I think people can kind of you know, it's not a hundred miles for most of your listeners, certainly not for me, but I can still reflect and say, Ooh, I, you know, this is what I like better because I feel better during it and maybe after it as
0: well. Sure. And to be fair, from a health standpoint, you're probably better off spreading that hundred miles out over the course of a month versus a day.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that would be wise <laughs> for most people, for most people. Yeah.
0: Awesome. I, well, I think like if there's some takeaways here that, that we can sum up with, it's like, One is be honest with yourself, do some assessment as to what you actually enjoy and don't be afraid to get detailed with it. Like you said, like, why is it that I like working out in a gym when there's people there and I don't like working out at home when there's nobody there on the same exact equipment and start experimenting with that and find out where your best environment and your best scenario is. And you may not always get that scenario, but it can at least drive what you kind of target or what you try to like do when you plan out your weekly or monthly schedule, maybe you say, well, at least two times a week, I'm going to make sure I go for a walk with, with a couple yeah. of friends, because that's what really yeah. motivates me to, to do it by myself when I don't have that option.
1: I love that, Zach. I mean, I, that, that's such a great approach. And I, I hope a lot of your listeners, I, I hope you have listeners out there who maybe don't have a regular physical activity regimen yet, and that this will really be helpful to them. And for those who do, you know, I still think it's important to think about these things, about flexibility, about having, 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 the things that make you enjoy it, you know, even if you're training for a hundred mile race, it doesn't mean that it has to feel like work every day. You're training, figure out the things that help you to enjoy the process you're going through to be competitive in this, in this bigger event that sits out there at the end of the month, that it sits out there three months from now.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's great. I think at, at minimum the listeners can walk away knowing that like they have probably at least one more reason to get out and even do a very small Exercise session a day, and that is uh, is going to is going to be a positive choice versus a negative choice in basically all circumstances, (laughs) barring barring extremes. So uh, awesome! Well, thank you so much for your time, Jenny. I think this was like really an an interesting podcast episode that I think will pair well with a lot of the other ones I've done, but it's also a fairly unique angle into it. So I just think it's going to add add a lot of value to those who who want to kind of like take ownership of their fitness and their health and, and just kind of stockpile those reasons to get out there and be active.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me so much. It's, it's a real pleasure. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your, to your listeners.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you ever want to come back on to share any information, just let me know. I'd be happy to, to reconvene. Um, but in the meantime, if there's anywhere that you'd like our like the listeners to go to check out work you're on, or if you're on social media and those sort of things, feel free to share websites, social media channels or books or anything. That's kind of in the pipeline for you.
1: Yeah. Well, if they're interested in the physical activity and Alzheimer's disease study that we're doing now, if they happen to live in the Greensboro area, then our pad to um, information you can find at the UNCG website. Um, And then uh, if your listeners are interested in Mojo, this new phone app that I was talking about, they're going to be on good morning America. And I think uh, NBC News, uh, the NBC Morning Show, as well, uh, on February the ninth.
0: Awesome! Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to check that out. That sounds really interesting. I'm excited to hear it. it's going to hit some of those mainstream outlets, so people can can see what that is and hopefully get a glance into what we talked about today.
1: Yeah, perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Zach. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Take care. Thanks again for coming on. Okay. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers Podcasts is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.